Welcome to episode 136. Today, Dr. Shelley Fairbairn and Stephanie Jones-Bow share with us how we can differentiate instruction and assessment for multilingual learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. I once heard a teacher jokingly say that differentiation is something that every teacher knows about, but no one really can do. I think my colleague was referring to the misconception of having to do 30 different lesson plans every single lesson. That would be unsustainable and not actually possible. In this conversation, we put down that myth and share a different, more accessible framework shared in their book. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so humbled and honored and excited to have Dr. Shelley Fairbear mm-hmm. on the podcast and the president of Starfish Education, Stephanie Jones Vo, to talk about their second edition of Differentiating Instruction and Assessment for English Learners, a guide for K to 12 teachers. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Would you first start us off each telling us a story about uh, that was related to education, that is related to education, and tell us how that story has uh, impacted your teaching today? Sure. Thank you. You know, um, I have so many vignettes, anecdotes, and stories. It was hard for me to narrow down which one to feature at this moment. But I finally decided upon one of the favorite ones I have, which um, came from the practice that Shelley and I both did together, actually, as we were teachers at the same time in the same school district, where we really uh, birthed our notions about differentiation for language learners. And so um, the, the student I would like to share with you Um, And that experience is a student who arrived in this suburban, um, primarily Caucasian, actually totally Caucasian school district at the time was from Sudan. And at that time we didn't have South Sudan, uh, but anyway, he was from Sudan and he was a refugee. So he miraculously ended up um, in our school district And um, it was a challenge to know exactly where to begin. If you might imagine, first of all, his height, he towered over every individual (laughs) in the school. Um, He also stood out because of his color, um, because he was the only student of color at the school. Um, His experience coming from a refugee experience, unbelievable experiences and hardships, dangers and separations um, also challenged us to 
to wonder where can we dig in? Uh, and so we decided that, okay, we'll just gotta get started and get to know this student from, from the ground up. And um, we thought, could we help to cultivate a body of friends for him so that he would have a support system? And first went to the coach of cross country and saying, you know what? We have a new student, wonder if he could participate with you. Perhaps, I don't know even if he wants to run or if he can run, but we need to get started. Which, and the coach said, oh, I'd be happy to take him under my wing and we're off. So that began to happen. It seemed to be going quite well until the coach appeared in my classroom at the high school one day and said, uh, Stephanie, you know, um, if, if your student is going to come and participate, he's going to have to come to every practice. And would you please speak with him? Because people thought that somehow I could speak new air, which no, of course I couldn't. But anyway, yes, I'll speak with him and see what I can communicate. And so I did. And when I had that discussion and I said to him, you need to go to every practice every night. And he said, but Mrs. Bo, I did, I did go to practice. And when I was there, I saw I was the fastest one. And so I stopped going. <laughs> okay, all right, I understand that. But in fact, even if you're the fastest, you need to go every time. Right. And so it was as simple as that. He began to go every time. And he gradually began to win friends and influence people. He, be he began to have a network of folks who invited them to their homes and included him socially. They took bus trips together um, to other track meets. And uh, lo and behold, we're at a cross country track meet end of the season at our school district. And so the whole team is on the field, they're outdoors, they're gonna run over field and dale. I don't know if you were a cross country runner, but evidently there are lots of obstacles and distances involved. So I was at the finish line. Shelly, you may have been there too, I think so, right? And so they're off to the races and we're cheering, yes, go, go, go. And then they're gone for quite a while. And we can see them coming over the ridge finally at the end and the race is coming to a close. And there he is, our student, and he's leading the pack. Oh, we're so excited, his very first track meet. This, this is gonna be fabulous. And then we notice that he kind of pauses and looks over his shoulder and he sees his best buddy, Josh, lagging behind him just a bit. And so what does he do? He Think about down. what he might do. Right. Well, he slows down. He slowed down, you bet he did. And he was, before you know it, just running in place, running in place and waiting for Josh to catch up with him. And so at the end of the race, here came the first winner and that was not Josh nor our student. And then came our student and Josh, second and third. Well, well, yay, that was kind of a good victory. And yet, oh darn it, uh, we needed to refine a few understandings. So what we did was figure out what went wrong. And we didn't actually know, but we did find out, didn't we, Shelley? We found out that in his culture and in the experiences that he had been through, and you've heard of lost boys and yeah. things that they went through, they needed to stick together. They needed to wait for their friends and not to do so 
would inspire great catastrophe. And so you would never think of yourself first. You would never shoot out ahead and leave them behind. And so it was my job to instill in Ruach the American sense of what? Go for it, kill, get over that finish line. You've got to win, leave them in the dust. And I'm just joking, obviously. And yet it was a cultural misfit, a mismatch that we had to inform and understand and somehow merge together. And so that kind of merging and inter integration is what I think is at the basis of our differentiation to know everything you can about your students before you launch in saying, I've got the instructional strategy for you because guess what? You do not. <laughs> That's my first anecdote. <laughs> I think it's very colorful and what a beautiful story. I mean, my heart just kind of melted for that kid. I was like, you know what? I feel for you because from a collectivist, I come from a collectivist culture and we would, we do that as well. We like, it's not about me. It's about us because we survive together. I think there's an African pro proverb that says um, to go, to go faster, go by yourself, but to go farther, go together. Right? Beautiful. And so, I think yes. your your um, Sudanese student was saying, yeah, that, I want to go farther. And so let's go together. Exactly. Exactly. Shelly, would you like to share? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about uh, my time teaching, um, co-teaching with Stephanie. And um, at that time, we were co-teaching at the high school in a suburb of, of Des Moines in Iowa, in the Midwest here in the U.S. And um I know you're not supposed to have favorite students, but I did have one. And um, I think she remains my favorite to this day, but they'd been assigned a, a poetry activity. They were to write a poem. And um, if it's okay, Tan, I'm gonna share my screen and share her poem. So here's Marima's poem. Um, and I can, can just read it, my homeland. To live in America, I'm really scared even if I know that I'm safe there. I've lived in America about a year and I always think about my homeland. I wish I could go there just to say hi. And if there was no war, my uncle wouldn't die. Please God stop the war so I can go back to my own home. This was written by a, a young woman from the former Yugoslavia. And I remember in my tiny classroom having her give that poem to me and ask me to read it. And, I read it and, and of course I was just, you know, um, verklempt and overwhelmed. And she said, is my English okay? And I thought like, who cares about your English? Right. Like this is your experience, this is your story. And um, with Stephanie, I, I, I found myself recognizing how important it is that all teachers understand the stories, the realities that um, English learners have experienced and know those students as kind of the, the basis for instruction and assessment. Right. When we know our students' stories, when we know them, we can really shape our instruction around them, which is both very similar to your theme of differentiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that, actually. Every, every book has a seed. What was the seed for this book? Mm -hmm. I think it really was, you know, 
fellow teachers asking us and, and jump in here, Stephanie, too, but fellow teachers asking us, oh, okay, what do I, I want to, you know, give appropriate assignments. I want to um, provide students with, you know, reasonable expectations, but how do I do it? And um, we, we searched actually for a book like this one that would really break down, okay, if students are at the, the beginning levels of um, their journey to learn English and then moving um, through the, the inter more intermediate stages and advanced, of course they need different things. And so we were looking for some sort of a tool or a resource to give to our, our colleagues and we couldn't find it. And, and we were kind of stunned. It's like, why has nobody made such a resource that, you know, on a single page would say, okay, if students are advanced, do this. If they're beginning, do this. Do. So our vision was really to, to create a poster of sorts that would have the five levels of proficiency that, that we used here in Iowa. And I mean, of course, are used um, in, all, you know, um, a variety of contexts, both in the U.S. and beyond and then would list strategies. Um, but we also recognize that, of course, students, you know, they're, they're speaking and listening may advance more quickly than the reading and writing. So we need to break it down by the domains of language and just have this resource. So we started to work on that. And um, we really just wanted to, to have a poster of ideas and um, found that it would be super expensive to produce. So ultimately we connected with Caslon Publishing. We were fans of their, um, their published book, um, Special Education Considerations for English Learners. And um, they said, well, yeah, we like the idea of the poster, but you're gonna need to develop some kind of a, a book to go with it. Um, it doesn't have to be extremely long. So we estimated Eight to you know eighty to hundred pages, and I think the book is three hundred and some pages <laughs> because we just found as we got into it, well, it's much more than the levels of proficiency. It's also knowing the students and um, considering so many what we called relevant student factors. So um, we did end up with that tool, the poster that we could give to our colleagues, but also. Um, a lot of guidance in the book about how to think about um, and get to know English learners of all different proficiency levels. Yeah, we always uh, write, I found that authors have always written a book that they wish they had. And so I think that's quite true yeah. for both of you. Uh, Stephanie, do you want to add to the story of your book? I think you're right. It's the, the book we wish we had had. And I always think of it in terms of being written out of desperation. <laughs> and uh, because Shelly and I were the ESL experts, if you will, and we weren't experts necessarily, I'll speak for myself, when we started. Um, mm -hmm. But what we went through with kids who were from, starting with six students in the entire program has grown to several hundred uh, during our tenure from maybe 35 languages, really expanded our uh, ELL muscles. <laughs> and we felt that as we mentored our colleagues along and getting an idea about how to support these students, 
we also learned a lot in the process and collected lots and lots of stories. Well, I hope to hear those stories as we continue to talk about your books. Your book, sorry. So let's talk about the first chapter, actually. Can you please talk to us about what it means to differentiate instruction for ELs? Sure, I'll start that one off. Um, you know, we are from Iowa, and it's no secret that Iowa is famous for its successful farming. <laughs> and so I like to make this analogy. Um, with family roots that are deep in farming, I can speak to the great care that's taken with fields before you can actually start to plant, before you um, set the stage for successful and bountiful yields, you need to do noticeable uh, and considerable preparation. You need to move the large rocks that have accumulated in the field over the past year. Um, and I know this because I've done that. I've lifted those heavy rocks without a plant in sight, but moving those boulders, you need to prepare the soil until till the soil, turn it over, freshen it up. You need to apply something that's going to encourage those seeds to germinate. Um, you need to aerate, you need to um, have the pH of the soil tested so you know that soil inside and out. This is before you even have a bag of seed corn, you know, ready to, um, ready to plant. And so similarly, Shelly and I really know the importance, and, and many of our colleagues, um, I've sensed that we're preaching to our choir here, um, also know this, the uh, essential nature of getting at the root of what's different about this language learner that is not the same here. So just to point out a few that we discuss in the book, we have, of course, refugee and immigrant students who may bring a host of different characteristics with them that need to be understood and factored in. We might have students who are children of professionals hired by corporations who are working maybe temporarily, or maybe they will be permanent, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. And so they may be on grade level in their first languages. They may be on grade level in English as well. We don't know what their receptivity to learning in English actually is yet. We have students who speak languages that use the Latin script, the same as in English. And increasingly, we have students who do not even the directionality and the font, everything different about their writing. And so speaking in terms of bringing along colleagues in understanding what a language learner needs helps individuals such as those who might be at the elementary levels or certainly secondary levels, teaching reading, understand what needs to be done. If we're not writing in Latin text somewhere along the way, we need to learn how to form those letters and which direction they're going to go. And perhaps we haven't discreetly broken down the instruction of reading to those fine points um, for all of our colleagues to understand. So although it's not in chapter one, there is a chapter including the teamwork that's required by absolutely 
everyone on the staff who comes in contact, and even those who do not come into personal face-to-face -face contact in the classroom, what is their role in supporting those particular students and how can they make a difference? So that's the beginning, I would say, um, of chapter one. And then chapter one is an appropriate place for me to share the analogy of the sifter. <laughs> so if you can imagine a sifter, and I have a sifter actually, I didn't think of um, showing it to you, but imagine I have a sifter here and it's got five levels in it. And my sifter actually does just representing the levels of language. But if you think of pouring all the content, you want that a student to understand for a grade level into a sifter. And there it is, all of it. And you serve it up to that student and you say, here you go, do it, learn it, have it. A student that's on grade level and is a native speaker of English will be able to manage it. They'll figure it out. They'll get it done, they'll do what you've asked. But for example, if you serve the sifter to a student who is, since we're on level one, we'll talk about the level one student who is just beginning, serve it up to that student and we have totally discouraged and inundated them with um, incomprehensible input and we need to do something. We need to differentiate. Right. And so we need to squeeze the handle and out of the bottom of the sifter, will fall some language load. Some things that help it to become a little simpler for the earlier developmental levels to grasp. So we've squeezed it once, so we're at level four. We're gonna squeeze it again. We've released more language load, we're at level three and so on, level two. And one more time, we're at level one. Look in that sifter what's left. Well, not as much in terms of volume, but in terms of amount to understand for that level one student, it is just right. And so we found a good match. This is what's left that they're able to engage with, learn, understand, manipulate, speak. And from there, we build tasks around that level and gradually scaffold them upwards. We can do it all based in the same content, in the same grade level, but we differentiate according to the language level that they're able to actively engage in. And we hold them fully responsible to demonstrate what they're able to do at that point. So in a nutshell, the sifter kind of explains the notion of linguistic differentiation which Shelley and I believe, Shelley, would you like to speak to how it's different from differentiation, such as um, the wonderful work of Carol and Tomlinson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, she talks about content process product environment, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about language. So mm -hmm. we're hoping, like ideally in that sifter, even if you're at level one, there's still the content. Those content standards are still in there. Now we recognize that it, this gets complicated when we're teaching English language arts, right? Because the content and language, it's the same thing. And so, it, I mean, we acknowledge that, but let's say that we're teaching a science concept. We're teaching the water cycle. 
we can get, we can remove through that sifting process and Stephanie's sifter um, has those five levels and a little handle that, that helps, you know, sort of mix up and um, separate out the contents of the sifter flower or whatever it is. Um, we can reduce the language demands of the lesson, but we keep the water cycle in there. So mm -hmm. we're still talking about, you know, the clouds, the rain, the evaporation, that's there. And we're not saying with linguistic differentiation that you would never teach academic language like evaporate to a student who is in the beginning stages of language learning. You still teach them the word, mm -hmm. um, but you've given them images and video, I don't know what all um, wonderful scaffolds and supports um, teachers listening would provide, but the student is able to, to understand that water cycle concept without having to read a chapter in a textbook or something like that. So they can, they can achieve the, the content learning without having to have, as Stephanie says, full mastery of the language. Right, right. That and I would add to that, that in that Zifter at level one, we maintain the higher order level thinking skills. Mm -hmm. We make it possible for students to express their understanding, to demonstrate understanding of content using a host of different strategies, which we also describe in great detail uh, in the book. Now, people who might know the first edition of the book from uh, 2010, came with a giant wall poster for teachers. And there was a section on that giant wall poster that provided instructional strategies and then also assignment and assessment strategies, just bullet point after bullet point that were differentiated according to levels. In other words, what students might be able to access. This particular edition, um, the second edition, is now accompanied by a development in the poster, which is this. And this is called the differentiator. This is everything that was on the poster, but it is in a format which is manipulative. So you can open and here you have a student represented. And these are the domains, listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And this is all for level one. So here we have the student descriptor. What could we expect a student to be able to do at level one in listening? They're color coded. So by domain, you can see uh, student uh, descriptors. And then the second, the middle column, assignment and assessment strategies broken down by domain. Here are some suggested ideas for a level one student. And by the way, we suggest teachers add their own favorite strategies. If they don't see them here, so it's not non-exhaustive, but certainly a good start. And then over here, we have the instructional strategies for teachers to try. And I think it's evident this was designed for our colleagues who were content specialists at the high school or certainly at the elementary schools because we were K-12. They were also specialists in, in learning in teaching reading and various math and what have you, but had virtually no preparation for teaching language learners. Now, I'll just give you one foreshadowing into how this works because every level is represented here. 
So if you know the level of your student, you can see them represented on one page. For example, say you have a student whose listening level is a two. You turn the page and you can represent the two. Speaking, oh, it's gonna be three because that's often higher, right? And then we'll have reading, which is often, uh, and writing, they're both maybe one, one, just as an example. So a teacher can identify a particular student and then based on the data that they've been provided, they can represent that particular student and see a range of ways for them to get started and consider what that student might need for support to move forward. So that is the differentiator. And I think this was born of teacher suggestions, wasn't it, Shelley, after we've done a number of professional developments, um, our teachers were really involved in, uh, I mean, teachers in a lot of places were mm -hmm. very involved in working with the publisher to come up with that differentiator. Mm -hmm. Where yep. can we get I that? Think, oh, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the, the differentiator comes with the book mm -hmm. or you can order the version that has the, the kind of the wall poster. Um, so either option is available for teachers. Sometimes um, teachers will get the version with the wall poster and maybe put the poster up in the teacher workroom or something. So, you know, a variety of teachers can access those strategies. I mean, I could tell the intentionality behind that uh, differentiator because it's a flip book. It's mm -hmm. not like you don't have to read the 300 pages that you right. wrote. You can. The test manual. Right. <laughs> so accessible. So when I share with teachers uh, Carolyn Thomason's framework, they make it it's quite accessible, but they always always often ask, "Do I have to do thirty lessons for thirty kids?" Like, how how do you answer that? No, <laughs> no. In a word, no, no. And we would never recommend that. I mean, I think Stephanie's a, a maybe a better multitasker than I am. But if I if I were working with students with you know, all five levels of proficiency, that enough, that alone is a lot to keep track of. Um, I know that the WIDA Consortium rec um, recommends, you know, when it's feasible to kind of group level one and two together, level three and four together, level five, maybe separately, but um, likely, you know, we're hopeful that, that many teachers wouldn't have students at all five levels. They may have students who grew up speaking English, and I, I'm I'm speaking of the local context here in the U.S., of course, Tan. But um, you know, they might have those native speakers of English, and then they would have um, some some English learners that maybe are at the beginning level, and then some that are more intermediate, um, and then the advanced students. Maybe they are grouped with those native speakers um, in terms of expectations. But what what teachers tell us is that as they think about the scaffolds and supports that are really necessary for students at level one, they recognize, well, why wouldn't you give that to everybody? For example, a graphic organizer or the visual representation or the manipulatives or the, the demonstration. They, so it, it becomes much less a, a multi-ring circus, so to speak, and something that can be offered to a group of students that are at different proficiency levels, but it's meeting the needs of all of the students. It's, it's not gonna hurt that native speaker to see a demonstration, to watch a video, 
In fact, it's likely to deepen their understanding as opposed to listening to a, a mini lecture or reading a, a text. And I, of course, teachers do more than that. We recognize that. But um, we're all about simplifying. Um, we, we also encourage teachers to carefully think about, let's say you do have all five levels and you've got, um, you know, you've got a writing assignment and you differentiate that out. And there are examples in the book use that same set of expectations for all of your writing assignments with adjustments. So it's not, or, you know, a rubric, we, we've got some recommendations in there. How do you um, score student work? I'm looking forward to presenting at TESOL about differentiated scoring rubrics. Um, but once you make one, those are hard to make. Keep using it. <laughs> don't, don't feel like you have to reinvent everything all the time. Um, we also encourage teachers, um, particularly those classroom teachers who are newer to serving ELs, you know, pick a unit that you hate to teach because the kids don't get it and start with that, with differentiation. We hear teachers tell us that, you know, I have native speakers that are level three in writing. And so we encourage those teachers, we'll use these strategies because we're supporting their academic language, social and academic language development. Stephanie, what would you add? I think you've covered it quite well, Shelley. Um, thank you. <laughs> I've I, got I my coffee going. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you're saying is the things that we are doing for our ELs to raise comprehension, to structure output, to mm -hmm. stimulate engagement are the same things that can be used that support uh, more fluent students, more student English speakers, or students who come from English speaking families, right? And so, because right. uh, I think I think students are are uh, academic language is a second language for all students. Definitely. Right? And so that's Absolutely. right. And so that mm -hmm. that's extra scaffold of support that you are going to use for your ELs mm -hmm. can be used a whole class or in a small group of mixed kids anyways. Exactly. If I could share uh, in Iowa, we had a district that um, decided they wanted to test all of the students, including non-ELs, to see what is their English language proficiency. And in, they tested an entire middle school, every student. And what do you think they learned about their non-English learners? On the uh, English learner proficiency exam, they were not proficient either. And so, wow, this gives us permission, right? This gives us a, a mandate we've got to teach to students to push their language development as well with academic language, with structure, with verbal and written conventions that we then hold them accountable to produce in their writing and their speaking. And um, it kind of in, uh, tips over the apple cart in terms of teachers thinking about, am I clear on my expectations for whatever this task is? That's the beauty of the rubric, that it is objective. And we only assess that which we teach, not which accidentally this student might come in knowing or able to articulate or write but we teach it, there it is. It might be posted in the room for reference, hopefully. Um, and we hold students to that. 
I mean, I think when, as you were talking, I was thinking about my students. Uh, there was a class where I was teaching students about the water wheel, uh, which is part of the Industrial Revolution. And mm -hmm. an, an activity I had my kids do was explain each of the parts of the water wheel. Uh, and I thought that was pretty clear instructions because we just watched the video about it. I saw mm -hmm. my students struggling, and these are like my fluent students from, mm -hmm. uh, who are quite, quite fluent. And I was like, oh, wait, I think the strategy that I'm using with my student who's not quite fluent would benefit mm -hmm. everyone else. I paused mm -hmm. the class and I said, okay, I'm going to share with you a screen that I'm sharing with this other student. It's all the parts of the uh, water wheel labeled. Now I want you to go try this activity again. And mm -hmm. miraculously, they were able to do that. And I was like, oh, uh, that's because my instructions were much clearer and they were scaffolded. And the differentiation that I provided for that student well, all the students could have used. And I think, uh, I know, Shelley, you like uh, Brene Brown and her, one of her favorite, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, uh, clear is kind. Mm. When we are clear to students, we are kind to them. In particular, was when we are clear without instruction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, and in fact, I mean, here I am teaching at Drake University. I'm working with future teachers. And the bulk of those students are grew up speaking English and, and are monolingual in English. But yet when we're talking about new concepts, they need a sentence starter. They don't have, know how to use certain terminology correctly. So, you know, if college age native speakers benefit, how much more, you know, would that sixth grader benefit from that kind of academic language support? Speaking about, uh, you talked earlier about content and language. So how do we teach content and differentiate for content and language for diverse learners, which is your chapter three? Yeah, we, um, in chapter three, we, we've got different views of how to do this and speak to the importance of teaching literacy as Stephanie alluded to, but um, we've got sort of a triple Venn diagram that, that helps teachers to consider, okay, we've got the student's language level, we've got their background characteristics, and then we've got the content standards. And so the overlap of all of that, that sweet spot is where appropriate expectations lie. And so if we're going to set those expectations that take into account the student's proficiency level, the content standards, the background characteristics of the student, then we can employ backward lesson design. Think about, okay, here's what I'm gonna have students do in the middle. And then what kinds of instructional strategies do I need so that they can be successful on that really targeted assessment? So we do, of course, borrow from um, the work of others with the back lesson design, but um, we're thinking about all of those different factors coming together. We do know that sometimes students have gaps in their content knowledge. And so we may need to, as Stephanie likes to say, back up the train and, you know, do, do some um, support with background knowledge. So sometimes we do need to modify the content standard, but in many cases, um, we can just maintain that content standard as it is. And um, by taking account, into account the language proficiency and the background characteristics, then we can 
come up with ideas. And, and the book does have, you, you know, um, listeners may be wondering what's in that book, because it's all on that little flip chart. Like, what did they do in the book? Well, each, each uh, of the chapters that targets strategies from the flip chart uh, or the poster includes examples and explanations of each of the strategies. And then there are examples of differentiated assignments and and the rubric and so forth. So teachers can can see, oh, okay. And as Stephanie says, then, you know, they look at the example and, you know, permission granted, use this, but then expand on it. Teachers often come up with way better ideas than, than are in the book. Oh, I wouldn't do that, but I do this instead. And so it, you know, it's sort of a springboard, I think for teachers. Um, to to recognize, hey, what what you know to do, what you know the kids need, do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly, and I would say at the beginning of chapters as well, we begin with five scenarios, uh, specific students based on students from our practice, and they're named, and then their characteristics and and background and some facts about them are laid out and they represent each of the five levels. So teachers may see the student they have in mind, they may see that person reflected in those scenarios and then uh, follow what is suggested in terms of instruction, tasks, assignments um, for a particular student. But that's a consistent structure throughout the book. I think those five scenarios are really helpful for teachers to see those five different levels and how you would work with them. I also really appreciate the framework that you provided, the language, the background, and the content. And would you be, would, so with that framework, teachers will be differentiating with, within those three things, those circles? Well, I mean, <laughs> it, if they really did it to the, to the nth degree, you would have 30 lesson plans. And we're not advocating for that, right? Because every student has different characteristics. Um, their relevant you know, factors are different. Their interests are different. Um, but it may be that you, know, you find that in this particular group of students, there's, there's a lot of um, kids really interested in soccer. <laughs> and so you know, you're, you're, you're taking some of that um, or you recognize, as was the case back when we were teaching in suburban um, Des Moines in, in the Midwest, that a lot of the students had experienced war. So we have to be caught, not, you know, sensitive to um, that background factor and in how we are talking about, you know, um, some aspects of history, for example. So the more you can think about their, their individual needs, the better. Um, yes. But even in my own practice, you know, I have students fill out an autobiographical information sheet, but it doesn't mean that, that in my college classroom, I'm adjusting the, the assignments to every individual student. It's just that as I'm teaching, I can make references to, oh, you know, like this, like that. So um, I, maybe it's more of a mindset of thinking about the individual students than actual practice, because we don't want to advocate that teachers have to do something separate for each kid, because then they can't do any of it, right? I mean, it's just too much. I don't know. Stephanie, I feel like I'm kind of fumbling around. Help me out. <laughs> no, no, 
I'm right there with you. And so I would add to that, that um, there are intuitive ways along the curricular uh, journey to embed pieces of student backgrounds and highlight it and have students speak up as experts. And that is when all teachers can develop that mindset that you mentioned, Shelley, of bringing in student identities. And I know that um, Jim Cummins and Paula Marcus and others are very well known for the identity texts and multimodal sort of work that students can create that really um, positions them as experts in the curriculum and they can share about their backgrounds, their families, their cultures, their oh, whatever it is. And, you know, even in um, our context at that school district, Shelley, um, I'm thinking about the social studies teacher who was at the high school. And it was a, a course on world history. And at the beginning of the year, I'll recall, in response to our influx of language learners, these teachers got together and they reshuffled uh, the curriculum and they decided to focus on sections of the world from which they had students. And they developed uh, an assignment, a task, a project really, that they would be in groups and develop presentations and culminated in a day long event that was systematically attended by every student in the high school as they rotated through and students repeated their presentations multiple times, complete with, oh goodness, cultural extravaganzas, I mean, dancing and at that time you were, you could bring refreshments to school that would be cultural. Those were the days, right, Shelley? Yes. <laughs> um, but how culturally responsive those teachers were and how proud the students were to be able to share and also learn so that they could present pieces of their language or you know cultural performances or so many things. It was a memorable day that really went a long way to unite the school and form the school, everyone in the school, all stakeholders. Um, as I recall, Shelley, we, we really focused on involving everyone from the custodial staff to uh, the lunchroom personnel, to secretaries, to administrators, and it was fully attended and um, set, set a tone. It really helped to bring things together cohesively. So in your explanation, uh, I'm hearing both of you say like, these are lenses, these three lenses are like language, background and content are lenses in which we see instruction. And as we're working with students, we can focus on one lens, and mm -hmm. we shift to another, or like the levers. So sometimes we pull this lever, maybe we'll pull the language lever in this part of the, of the lesson, but maybe we'll pull the background lever at this part of the lesson. It, we're not mm -hmm. trying to pull all three at the same time because that would be too intense, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it does work. But yeah, it's always at the back of your mind. How can I merge more than one of these, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just thinking that I think you're onto something with the idea of the levers. And sometimes we talk even with, when we're focused on the language. What aspect of the language is it? You know, this kid, kid needs to build some stamina with writing. So for this student, I'm expecting 
you know, I'm calling for a longer stretch of discourse. This other student needs to work on sentence structure. We, we don't need just a string of simple sentences that's too safe. So I'm, I'm maybe not expecting as long a writing sample or product, but I wanna see more complexity. This other student, let's get away from only using social language. So I'm not, you know, with you, I'm not as worried about um, the length or the sentence structure. I wanna see vocab. So I think even within those different language, you know, content standards, background factors, we can pull levers as well. I really like that, um, that way to think about it. I'm getting a vision of the Wizard of Oz with the levers going on right now for some reason. Um, yes, levers. <laughs> or areas of focus. <laughs> yes. um, I'd also like to share a structure that is in the book and we encourage teachers to use it and replicate it and uh, go by the examples. I'll hold it up if you don't mind which is the differentiation template. Now, isn't that just a smattering of writing? But what it is, is um, a three level division of how to backwards differentiate a lesson. So the middle or rather the top is what is the assignment? So we would have the standards-based content or topic from the curriculum. What is it? We'll write that right here. And then for level one, two, three, four, and five, and this is the non-ELL. And uh, then we have, and what are the expectations that we could expect at level one, two, three, four, five, and non-EL? And finally, with each of those levels, what scaffolding or support might we offer? So this works for, um, start with a blank one, begin over here with your full expectations and fill that in so we know what are we expecting and holding students accountable for exactly. Now, in my experience, some teachers have said, well, I, I'm not sure, but I'll know it when I see it because I know good work when I see it. That is not helpful. And that does not provide any guidance for students along the any other levels of development on what they need to provide. And so it's helpful for teachers to know what they themselves specifically need at those levels. And also if they know that, they'll know how to push the student upward to the next level, which is very key in the concept of differentiation, not just, oh good, we're level four, goodbye. Mm -hmm. No, we need to get you to level five. Mm -hmm. And there is differentiation to be done at every level. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking about your levels, would you share uh, an example of a, of a lesson where you would differentiate for beginners and then so level one and level two? Because now we currently have lots of uh, influx of students who are coming from other countries. And so I think teachers would love just two examples, one from a beginner a level one and one from a level two. Well, I have a beginner idea, Shelley. Is that right or would you like to? Yeah, no, please go ahead. Okay, it occurs to me that um, we had high school students who were um, enrolled in credit bearing classes and one of the classes was speech. This might sound like it wouldn't be a match <laughs> and in some ways it wasn't. And so this was when I say, we wrote the book out of desperation. It was desperation for things like this, for the speech class. 
And so we had students who were Chinese, Vietnamese, and um, they owned a restaurant in their family. And what these girls did at the restaurant, among other things, was prepare the uh, linen napkins and they folded them into exotic designs and, you know, they were ready at every table when customers would come in. So the assignment was a processed speech and we needed to uh, figure out, all right, what is the structure for conveying a process? We needed um, a verbiage such as first or, you know, in order to and next and after that, that sort of language which was easy to figure out and could be used by every student for every process. And so we worked with these students to demonstrate the art of the napkin folding for the restaurant and they were able to participate. Why? Because we knew their background. We integrated what they knew with uh, where they were going and they developed the language along the way. So that was a, a true example. Another example for the same class was the rich and tasty Bosnian coffee, Shelley, um, which uh, there's quite a process which involves a mlin, a grinder that's evidently ground for hours so you can get it very fine and powdery. And we were able to have that as a visual aid from the families they brought to school. And there's a lot of, um, accoutrement that go along with the Bosnian coffee. Tiny cups, uh, kashikitsa, and little tiny spoons, and then the jezva, which is the side pouring coffee handle. Um, and that's another thing teachers can do, learn a few words in student languages. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the most valuable to me included, um, what Shelley? <laughs> uh, what I know, doing? that's the one I thought of too. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which unfortunately means you're lying. <laughs> but I know a few, just a few. Slaughter lead, yes, ice cream. Thing. Um, <laughs> but in any event, uh, they were able to go through the motions and have a lovely visual presentation that they accompanied with their, um, with their repertoire of what was happening. And full credit, you know, on the rubric of the expectations, which were clearly laid out, these newcomers were able to participate. They were able to manage words and phrases. Yes, full credit because their data showed that's what they're able to do. And they did that. We're pushing them to the sentence. Maybe they even had one sprinkled in at that point. But this is what we, what Shelley had mentioned earlier about helping students to demonstrate knowledge without full language mastery. So that's a newcomer example. Yeah, and I mean, if we often, when we talk to teachers, think about, okay, what are the language demands of the lesson? You know, what, what's the vocabulary? What, what are the sentence structures or discourse structures? You know, what length are you expecting? And so all of those expectations can be adjusted to fit um, the, the data that we have on the students. So we have had some teachers that get nervous and they say, is this watering down the curriculum? Is this dumbing it down? No, this is database decision-making. You know that this kid, you've got data that says this student can produce simple sentences. 
So are you going to expect that student to, you know, produce something way, way, way more and then just say, well, guess what? You failed. Like they didn't even have to do the project. You could have just failed them. Save some. Minute. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Why bother? So, you know, it's about it's about figuring out their the students instructional level and pitching instruction right there so mm-hmm. that they can move forward. Mm-hmm. continue on that journey of language development. Well, we are at the end of our podcast. So let's end with just one idea. Like, let me, how do we say this? If you could put your 300 pages of text into a single sentence, I know that's an unfair request. What would, what's the one message? Like you have a room of teachers, you've worked with them for eight hours. They, you, um, there was a workshop of eight hours and now they're leaving. And you say this, if you can remember one thing about mm-hmm. differentiation from the, this book, from this workshop, this is the one thing I want you to know, what would it be? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> Stephanie, you go first. I'll go first. Okay. Well, yeah, I have given this considerable thought over the years. What is the most important aspect of differentiation? And I would honestly say this, it is first of all to make the students even feel as if they want to participate or engage in it. Um, What motivates them, bearing in mind that many have suffered greatly before they arrived or have had interrupted schooling, have um, family and friends in other countries and may even wish they weren't here. They may have um, conflicting loyalties and uh, academic disinterest, so many things. The most important thing to take away in my view would be to make these students feel welcome. Help them to see visual representations of themselves in the classroom and throughout the school and to build a team of professionals, teachers, coaches, um, counselors, speech language pathologists, Everyone in the school um, wraps their arms around all these students and they become an integral, valued um, part of the school community. That would be the most important. And then we can proceed with, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of instruction. Mm-hmm. I think I, I've got a catchphrase, and this is um, from the work of Meryl Swain in in assessment, language assessment, which is bias for best. Like set it up so that students will be successful. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, it's, I think that's another way of saying what, what Stephanie has pointed out. If, if I'm biasing for best performance accomplishment, that does include looking beyond my four classroom walls. It calls for some collaboration. It calls for um, some education. I often, as an ESL teacher, felt that maybe 30% of my job was was working with the students teaching them language. So much of it was educating my colleagues, collaborating, um, Mm -hmm. cultural piece, um, Mm -hmm. so many other, you know, teaching a student how to um, access their, their free and reduced lunch by punching in their code, you know, all of that sort of thing. But if we can put put that notion of bias for best um, in in the front of our mind, I think that sets us up to think about how to bring in that whole school community and beyond 
to support learners in achieving their potential. Well, through this book, you have definitely helped uh, helped us think about being biased for best, right? So you. you said earlier that you, uh, when you wrote this book, you were motivated because it, it didn't exist. It didn't existed when you when you wrote it. There was Caroline Thomason's book, but it, it wasn't something specific for English learners. And so we, I'm so happy that you've, you, you wrote this in 2010, and then now there's an update, and uh, you're able to support teachers differentiate for best for their English learners. So thank you very much. Oh, I want to tell you where I got, how I, how I heard about your book. I uh, wonder. Yeah, I have, so uh, there is a colleague of mine and she has a daughter who is work, who is uh, in a master's program and your book was one of the required readings. And yes. she, there's lots of required books, but she's like, oh mom, this one, this one's really good. Oh, wonderful, thank you. Okay. That's great. That, that's high praise. We just, uh, our goal was to support teachers right, right. in their important work. Right. So that's really high right. praise. Thank you. And the fact that she said this was a really good book, it's a practical book, and it, it was it like rose to the top of the other list that she recommended. That oh, is high praise. Goodness. Thank you. Do you know, Tan, it always seems to me that when teachers speak to teachers, they tend to have credibility. <laughs> Yes. a little more credibility than people who just talk to teachers and say this is the way it should be <laughs> well thank you for showing us how to do it you're modeling and you're working with us side by side in the classes through your book thank, thank you Tan. thanks for having us before we recap this episode i have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, on to our recap. I really appreciated all the analogies and metaphors that Shelley and Stephanie used. I like to think about differentiation as levers, pulling different levers depending upon the student. We can apply this to their framework of thinking about differentiation on the language level, the background level, and the content level. Now, that's an easy framework to follow much more accessible than the 30 lessons per class approach. You can get their wonderful differentiator flipbook when you purchase the book online. Happy differentiating. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.